country is not well. Zach, Jenny, can we have a listening to that gunfire? On October 14th, Al Jazeera's senior correspondent in Lebanon, Zaina Khodr, reported live as gunfire raged around her in the capital, Beirut. The clashes unfolded right near the infamous Green Line. Heavy gunfire in an area of the capital, Beirut, which lies at the crossroads of Shiite and Christian militia bastions, which were battlegrounds in the civil war that ended three decades ago. The Green Line has come to symbolize the sectarianism many blame for devastating Lebanon's economy and for entrenching a class of political elites who continue to fail to pull the country out of crisis. I'm Patricia Sabga, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The violence that racked Beirut last week left at least seven people dead. And there's still no clarity on who started it or why. The streets in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, are quiet after a day of violence. But some warn it could just be the calm before the storm. We do know that it's related to the ongoing investigation into the massive port explosion in Beirut last year. Families of the victims, more than 200 were killed, have accused the political leadership of the country of trying to shield itself from scrutiny. And we know that tensions are likely to remain high as long as the investigation continues. Last year's Beirut port blast is seen as a symbol of the state's failure. But nobody knows this story better than Zena Khodor. I spoke with her earlier this week. I want to go to one of your more recent reports, and that would be on October 14th. You were covering the violence in Beirut, and a video of one of your live reports went viral. There was a barrage of gunfire. It was super intense. The sound was so loud, it was almost drowning you out. And you made this incredibly poignant observation that this battle was happening across a decades-old front line. Across a decades-old front line. It really... I would really love it if you could just walk us through everything that happened that day leading up to that point. What were you expecting when you headed out to report that day? Well, tensions were simmering already. There was a fierce campaign against Judge Tariq Bitar. He's leading the investigation into last year's Beirut port explosion. And the protest was called for by Shia political groups Amal and Hezbollah. Thursday began with Shia groups, including Hezbollah, holding rallies, calling for the removal of the judge investigating that port blast. We knew that this is going to be a show of force. Their leadership was calling for Bitar's removal, and they were adamant. We were expecting security disturbances, to be honest. It, I think the whole country was as well. Just an example, my child, he's a nursery. The school canceled a field trip planned outside Beirut because of the protest that was called for. So there was already tensions. When we reached the protest, there were still a few people. It wasn't a large crowd, but the slogans and the chants, very provocative. And then suddenly the gunfire. Now, gunfire is quite normal in Lebanon. And... At at first, we didn't think much of it. I thought that maybe this was a way of saying that we are not going to back down. Because, I mean, you hear gunfire at funerals, you hear gunfire at weddings. But then we started to hear that there are casualties, dead, wounded. And things were happening quite quickly. We were a few hundred meters, if you like, from this confrontation. So 
as we walked towards the front line, we heard this really loud explosion. And it was an RPG that was fired in the air. Army tanks have rolled into the city and deadly gunfire was exchanged. Ambulance sirens are now wailing across the city and evacuations are being carried out by police and civilians. We saw people rushing uh, to their cars. Then I saw some families run down the street with their children. This was serious. And while we were trying to put things together and understand what is going on and then relaying this, of course, to the world, we were also thinking about our own families. Sarah, the producer, was calling her mother to check where she was. Ali, the cameraman, asked Sarah, can you call my wife to make sure where our son is, if he's still at school? Because where the clashes were happening was the road he usually takes home. I had called my mother to pick up my four-year-old son at school because my husband is out of the country. And I told her to just send me a message on WhatsApp to make sure once she's home, because I wouldn't be able to call her. Um, My husband was calling me and saying, I'm hearing gunshots, what's going on? I said, then just open open the TV. If you hear me talking, we're fine. There's no time, guys. I mean, that's how things work here. This was the run-up, let's say, to the, the whole event on Thursday, on October the 14th. People often lose sight of the fact that a reporter actually often lives where they're reporting on these stories. And you have been covering this country for many, many years. And it really makes me wonder, when you walked into this battle unfolding, what kind of memories did that awaken for you? I mean, there was a civil war in this country. It ended in 1990. And most of us may have not lived through the whole civil war, but at least a few years. I was in Beirut from 1985 to 1990, the last five years, where street battles were so common. Car bombings were so common. Twice there was a car bombing just underneath the building where I lived. In many ways, we are used to this, but in many ways, you can never get used to something like this. At the beginning, we were not wearing our flak jackets or our helmets because we were taken off guard when the gunfire started to erupt. Yes, we expected security disturbances, but not five hours of intense gun battles. So we wore our flak jackets and helmets. You get used to this, but... It's not the normal, and it shouldn't be the normal. And it just comes a year after that massive explosion, which was one of the largest non-nuclear blasts in world history. Every single Lebanese still remembers the sound of that explosion. So this is constant in a country like Lebanon, where there's very little stability. So what do we know right now about who was responsible for starting the unrest that resulted in seven people being killed? Well, each side uh, put forth their own narrative on what exactly happened. The Shia political groups were the ones who had called for this protest. They said that there was a premeditated attack by the Christian Lebanese forces. Now, these two are longtime enemies. Their animosity dates back to the days of the civil war. So Hezbollah says that it was the LF. They opened fire on a crowd and they killed people. And this started the confrontation or the clash. The Lebanese forces is denying that. In fact, they're denying any role in this confrontation. In fact, what they're saying is that the people of Aina Romani neighborhood. That's a mostly Christian area of Beirut. They were the ones who, quote, defended their neighborhood because uh, the protesters were, quote, invading their neighborhoods and chanting provocative slogans. So they're denying that there was a sniper. And then there's the official Lebanese army's take on it all. In their first statement, less than an hour after the first gunshots were heard, 
they took the same line that Hezbollah did, and they said that there was a sniper. But a few hours later... They issued a second statement correcting themselves and saying, no, there was no sniper. There was an altercation on the ground that led to the confrontations. As you can imagine, with the different narratives being presented by either side, this is causing a lot of tension. Right. I mean, you've just beautifully laid out the narratives and counter-narratives. So there is some fog around what actually led to the outbreak of violence on October 14th. But we do know that it was rooted in the ongoing investigation into that massive Beirut port explosion last year that killed 218 people. Where does that investigation stand right now, the investigation into the port explosion? Well, it has been a troubled investigation from the start. An investigation into the blast headed by young judge Tarek Bitter is looking into the causes. He has said that nothing will stop him, that he has a mission to see this through and uncover the truth. Judge Bitar is the second judge. His predecessor was removed by these politicians after he started to charge a number of them with criminal negligence. The investigation so far has been really focusing on who was responsible for storing the ammonium nitrate in Warehouse 12 alongside flammable materials. So the first judge was removed by the politicians and then Judge Bitar. He wanted to initiate the process of prosecuting those who he believes is responsible. He summoned a number of officials for questioning. They're refusing to show up. When they refused to show up, he issued arrest warrants, but the security agencies have not arrested these officials. The political and the security establishment, which has been governing this country for decades now, have united against Judge Bitar. They are trying to prevent this investigation from moving forward, to prevent any accountability in a country where a culture of impunity has been prevailing for years now. Since the port explosion last year, a former shopkeeper named Ibrahim Hotep had been determined to break that culture of impunity. Nothing can prevent us from getting our rights. We hope that all the Lebanese people will stand by us so that we can become more powerful. Because the power of corruption not only killed us, it killed the whole country and all these people. Hotep's brother was killed in the blast, and for over a year he had been the spokesperson for all of the families affected. That is, until last weekend when he abruptly resigned in a video posted on social media and withdrew his past support for Judge Bitar. When he released that video, a lot of people were shocked because this was not the man they knew. This man was at the forefront of this campaign to demand justice and accountability. Whenever we needed to know what they were planning to do, we used to call Brahim. And so when he released this message, a lot of people were shocked and people who know him well and who are close to him said that this is not him. This is not him speaking. Look at his body language. He's looking it's as if somebody is in the room. Maybe he's speaking, he's under threat. Now, the other family members of the victims, they were shocked and they said, you know, he doesn't speak on our behalf. The following day, they did, uh, you know, release a statement saying that we still support Judge Bitar and we still want justice, we still want accountability. They disassociated themselves from what Ibrahim said, but most of them did tell us and told other journalists as well that they believe Ibrahim was in one way or another threatened. With all this pressure on Judge Bitar, it just shows you how defiant he is. He's one man. He's one man against the whole system. 
How has opposition to and support of Batar unfolded along sectarian lines in Lebanon? Every political crisis takes on a sectarian nature in this country. That blast affected the whole city. But in Lebanon, the sectarianism dominates almost everything. It's the system in the country. It's the way people think. In fact, people are more loyal to their sex than they are to the nation. So how do these politicians use a event or disaster like this. For example, it was mainly the Christian areas which were most affected by the blast because they are in close proximity to the port. So when you have, let's say, a Muslim leader who says, I want to remove this judge, then their rival will easily say, well, you want to remove him because none of your people were casualties. You know, it was our people who were the casualties in in this explosion. So this is the rhetoric you hear. It's just very unfortunate that the leaders here are sectarian leaders, and the political parties are sectarian parties. This is why Judge Bittar is described really as one of the rare judges, because he's not politically affiliated with any side. The families of the victims support him. Even human rights groups are supporting him. And yet he's being accused by some of harboring political biases that fall along sectarian lines. So at the root of this is the sectarian power-sharing arrangement, which is embedded in Lebanon's history. Just for context, can you give us a brief history of the power-sharing arrangement and what the current arrangement is? Well, there was a 15-year civil war in Lebanon, 1975-1990. Before the war, Christians had more power than Muslims. At the end of the war, it, it changed. The Christians lost a lot of uh, power in government, and um, there was a new, a new power-sharing agreement. And it really carved up the country between these different sects. Parliament is divided into sects, a number of seats for Muslims, a number of seats for Christians. The president has to be a Christian, the prime minister has to be a Sunni, the speaker of parliament has to be a a, a Shia. So in this system, these politicians are are stronger than the state, if you like. They, They use and exploit the state's resources. That exploitation trickles down to the average Lebanese person in very real ways. Zaina even mentioned an example during her coverage of the fighting last week. Most people don't even have electricity because the state only, pro- uh, only provides an hour or two of electricity a day, so many will not be able to watch the news to see what is happening. Lebanon is also in the grips of a fuel crisis, and its economy has spiraled deeper and deeper into ruin. Yes, the economy has all but collapsed. The currency is in free fall. It lost 90% of its value in the past two years. People's savings are trapped in banks, and the state is nearly bankrupt. I asked Zina how the sectarian power-sharing arrangement had sown the seeds of Lebanon's myriad crises. The sectarian leaders who have been governing this country since the end of the, the war for three decades now They have been able to exploit the state because of this system. For example, they appoint people according to sect and not according to merit. They give them jobs, they give them services, simply because there's no state. You have a country where these politicians use sectarian identity, where they use the threats of civil war in order to maintain support among their constituents, to tell them, we protect you from them. And so, says Zena, those threats discourage any push for accountability or any expectation that Lebanese politicians will solve the country's crushing problems. 
the message from last Thursday during those confrontations to the Lebanese people is you push for justice, you're going to push for accountability, this will uh, endanger civil peace. So a lot of people would say, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it that we keep pushing for the truth uh, about what happened and what caused or led to the port explosion? If we do that, then you will have instability or, you know, you're just going to have to accept the status quo. How much longer can the country stay on this trajectory? How much longer can it continue to spiral into an economy that the World Bank ranks it as one of the world's three worst in 150 years. How long can this continue? And where do you think this political paralysis is going to deliver the country? Well, there's a lot of hardship. People are struggling. It's a daily struggle. 80% of the population is now poor. This is according to the United Nations. Even if you have money, sometimes you cannot find diesel to power the generators in order to have electricity. Or if you have money to pay for fuel, gas stations are not open because gas station owners are are just as corrupt as the politicians. They will hoard the fuel and wait for the prices to increase or to sell the fuel on the black market to make extra money. So this is how the whole system operates. A lot of people will say, people are hungry. Why aren't people in the streets? Why isn't there a hunger revolt? It's a question people keep asking again and again. And I think there are three reasons. One, families have, uh, you know, members abroad who are helping them. And then you have people who are afraid of a militarized state. And then you have people who are just too tired, who believe that change will not come from the street and that they are just trying to make ends meet. Lebanon is going to enter a very difficult period the next few months leading to the elections, an election which could be really a turning point, which could change the balance of power in this country. Do you see that shift happening without bloodshed? I'm not sure about bloodshed, but definitely there's going to be instability. The divide is very deep. And I I think there's something we didn't mention here, the fact that all these different groups have external alliances and regional international power struggles are played out here. You have some allied to Iran, you have some allied to Saudi Arabia. And as we know, the Iranians and the Saudis are engaged in a power struggle uh, across the region, not just in Lebanon. And of course, you have the rivalry between the United States and Iran. So multiple crises among Lebanese factions, which are allied with outside powers who are engaged in their own power struggles, all playing out in this small nation where civilians are trapped. And what we saw on October 14, those street battles definitely could happen again. Lebanon is not immune to violence. The ground is fertile for this. And so people are worried. People are worried. There won't be civil peace, if you like, and and, and stability in the next few months. Zena is a paragon of unbiased reporting, so it's easy to forget sometimes that Lebanon is her home. It's where her family lives, a family that worries about her when she's out reporting in a hail of gunfire. You call your son, you call your husband, everyone fine, stay home, please don't get me worried. I cannot think about anything else right now. And then you hear them tell you, well, keep your head down because we're worried as well. You know, we're just going to keep doing this. I mean, this is our job. 
And uh, hopefully for the sake of the people, we're not going to see further bouts of violence, but I can safely say that it's going to happen. I just don't know when. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with Alexandra Locke, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliayi, and me, Patricia Sobga, filling in for Malika Bilal. Aya Almalek is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed this episode. Tom Fenton is the Take Story editor. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.